What's up, everyone, and welcome to episode 222 of the Justin Insight podcast, a show where we talk to people involved in the world of their alternative music and their journey through it. As always, my name is Tim Birkbeck, and I'm your host and guide through said podcast. And as I've reiterated many a time, but I'm going to do it once again, apologies for being away for a little break. Um, this one is just purely down to me being lazy. I have no excuses. Um, but as I've mentioned before, this podcast is not, not becoming a chore because I fucking love doing it, but it's just finding a bit harder to do the... Oh, wow, that was good English. Finding it a bit harder for the... T- I still can't get the words out. Finding the time a bit harder to come by. There we go. We got there in the end. Um, but that being said, when we do get the opportunity to do them, I will knock them out and I will make sure that we get some incredible guests on and we get some really cool interviews for you to get in your luggles. Um in the time I've been away, I went to Repentfest in Newport, which was fucking sick. Uh especially getting to see Spy for the first time. Go check our out our interview with Peter recently. That was a pleasure to have and it was a pleasure to meet him in person. Um even if he did stomp a hole through the stage. Uh, got to see Tsunami, which was really cool, and No Pressure as well. So that was a really, really cool time. And then recently saw Judy and the Jerks. If you're not familiar with Judy and the Jerks, go check them out because they are fucking sick. Um, as well as lots of new music coming out there. Out there? Yeah, out in the world. Um, I've just been busy with work, busy seeing friends, and just living life at the moment. So it's all systems go here at Justin Insight HQ. Um We'll have this week's episode, and then we're going to have one more episode next week in the run-up to Outbreak Fest. None of them are necessarily related to Outbreak Fest, but just thought I'd put that out there that we are nearing Outbreak Fest. It's finally fucking happening. After the pandemic and being two years, well, nearly three years away by the point we get here. No, two years. Sorry, calculations. Cannot do them right now. Brain is frazzled. Um... But yeah, it's going to be so sick. Going to see so many friends, so many awesome bands. Um, and yeah, it's just going to be a really, really cool time to see so many ba- so many friends. Um, and hopefully we'll have some, some interviews coming after that. I'm hoping to line some up and get the, the ball rolling finally. And get I know I keep saying that, but hopefully get these a bit more consistent. Um, I'm hopefully... As we get into the summer, have a bit more time and things like that. So we'll see how things go. Anyway, let's get into this week's guest. This week I am joined by guitarist and founding member of Death Gaze Innovators, Kardashev uh, Nico Mirola. Um, before I kind of say anything further, I do apologise for the sound on this. For some reason, when we were carrying out this interview... Everything was fine, but then I listened to Nico's recording back and there's a crackle in it for some reason. I don't know why. I've tried to sort it, but it's still there for a little bit. So apologize, apologies, sorry, the um, quality of sound isn't the greatest. But nonetheless, this is still a really, really cool interview. Um, we talk about how Nico actually initially wanted to be a bass player, but ended up falling in love with the musicianship of guitar um, and how that's obviously progressed into the work that they're doing with Kardashev. We talk about how, even from its early stages, Kardashev wanted to be something that kind of bucked the trend in their their native Arizona, but it's obviously transpired to be something that's grown to be a much, much wider project. 
and beloved as such um and also how they've kind of now just as existed as a band on the internet and how that kind of suits them down to the ground at this moment in time but they're not ruling out the possibilities of doing live shows in the future uh we obviously talk about the new record liminal right as well as the kind of whole concept ethos around the band and so so much more as well so please enjoy the chat i have with nico and i'll see you on the other side Right, so joining me this week on the Justin Insight podcast is guitarist of Death Gaze Innovators, Kardashev, Nico uh, Marola. Nico, thank you very much for taking some time out of your day to have a little chat with me. Um, I guess the best place to start is because we're less than a week removed from Liminal Right. Like, how has it kind of been for you guys, like now putting that out in the world? What's the reaction been like for you? Uh, the reaction has been excellent. As a matter of fact, yesterday I had a phone call with my drummer where we both went over how um, how like anxious but also incredibly excited we are that the reception has been what it's been, which has been pretty glowing as far as we can tell. I mean, people are going to be critical of like the mix and like the length and the change from the vinyl to the CD, but ultimately it's been very, very awesome. And I'm very grateful for that. And because obviously I think... We'll get into it in a bit more detail in, in a moment, but I think obviously with this record, it's maybe I think people have obviously discovered you from previous sort of uh, records and, and output that you've done. But I think there was maybe a bit more of onus of like expectation on this record from a fan perspective. So did you kind of feel that pressure? Yeah, I think I think we did. Um I remember looking back and thinking to myself, this feels different in the process because Metal Blade's on board. They're going to be marketing it very strongly, whereas in the past, DIY drops are just kind of like, hey, it's on Bandcamp. Go check it out. You know, it's, <laughs> yeah. it's very simple. So the the onus was different in that way, but also we had a lot to live up to because in some way you have to sort of convince everyone that you were worth signing to a record label. They have to kind of mm. like, like, they're kind of like, oh, these people, they can do it. Okay, we'll see. Right. And they kind of like want to see what you're capable of. So I think we kind of delivered. I think it was okay. That's cool. Well, what I like to do is I like to take my guests sort of back to their, their roots and their origins. So kind of like learn about your kind of exploration into music. So how I like to always kick things off is like, what kind of got you into alternative music in the first place? What was your jumping in point? For metal? Is that what you're asking? What, just alternative music in general? Alternative music. Got you. Um, well, I'm a millennial, so, you know, it would have been the era of Disturbed, Linkin Park, um, you know, even Evanescence to a degree when you have choruses that are basically done in like a Fry style. So yeah, hearing those on the radio sort of like made me turn my head and think like, what what is this? How are they doing that? Is that real? Right. And so it once you once you have the inquiry, once you want to discover more about something that you've observed, I think that's kind of what gives you the desire to just keep going down the rabbit hole. And eventually you find yourself listening to like the most brutal toilet bowl gutturals you've ever heard. And you're like, this is incredible. <laughs> yeah. So, yeah, it would have been those those bands, probably. So was it? your kind of like morbid curiosity that kind of like got you into that or did you were you surrounded by people that were maybe listening to that music how did you kind of get into it initially you know 
unlike my bass player, nobody in my family listened to metal. So my, right. my bass player, Alex, his dad listens to metal, like the classics and like even Metallica and stuff. So he, his father was always fostering him into the community. Whereas I grew up with like Frank Sinatra and Cher. Like those were, oh, wow, okay. <laughs> those were, that was the music that I was being fed at home. So for me, it was morbid curiosity. I had, I had heard it on the radio or, or maybe through like some video game soundtrack or something of the like. And I decided that I wanted to learn more about that. And so I remember very vividly one of the most visceral associations I found was like the metal t-shirts, right? Seeing the incomprehensible font and then also associating it with the sound and being like, these are linked somehow. Because like early on in the internet in the 90s, like you weren't really able to like query with Google SEO at that time, you couldn't say like, what, <laughs> yeah. what does this sound look like visually? So once I saw people listening to metal and I saw that the clothes they were wearing, it sort of kind of developed from there. Yeah. And you obviously mentioned kind of like the, the earlier stuff, like, so as you say, like Disturbed, Linkin Park, Evanescence and things like that. But then obviously that progressed into the more heavier extreme sort of side of things so what were some of those bands that kind of led you on that path to the the more the extremities side of things um yeah i think there's a lot of like um gateway bands that sort of blend the sound Uh, all that remains is a good example where they have singing but they also have harsh vocals but then you also have um the sort of like avenged sevenfolds where you know m shadows is kind of like altering his voice with a lot of grit more grit than you'd hear in sort of like a like a rock, like rock and roll bands or something. Mm. So I was really, I was really focused on this, the vocals at first, because that's one of the biggest outliers between just like rock music and then metal is that you start there, you hear it, the voice sounds different, but then you hear the intensity of the guitars. So for me, I went from like, it was kind of a big jump. I went from Avenged Sevenfold and like a Treyu, like that style. I went to like Warped Tour one year and stuff, but then I started getting introduced to like Job for a Cowboy was there and I heard what they were doing and they had pig squeals and I was like, oh my God, what the heck is this? And so I started down this path of looking for bands that other people were buying at record stores and stuff. So it turned into like Carnifex, it turned into Azalea Dying, it turned into the Black Dahlia Murder. All of these bands started rolling into my perception until eventually I was so thirsty for it that I would wind up with like Necrophagist or something. And I'm just like, this is so extreme. <laughs> so it was it was a lot of those more marketed bands on the West Coast of the United States. Yeah. And then in terms of you kind of actually like playing instrument and get and getting into like playing music obviously we know you as the guitarist yeah uh, but was guitar always what you kind of started with or did you kind of dabble with anything else before that and then elevate into guitar what what was your musical journey you know interestingly i haven't talked about this before but um i originally wanted to be a bassist i don't know why okay i don't know why i i, I think like looking back on it i think like oh that's that's interesting i wonder what drew me to it because i don't rightly know but what i can mm. say is that my mom said i think we should start you with guitar and i said okay sure and she's like and then you can like move into bass or whatever other instrument so she bought me like a fender starter pack guitar it had like a little practice amp and a little carry case and and it was like a fender squire or something and i remember learning like acdc's thunderstruck riff like just the tapping <laughs> yeah. i was like oh i can do this thing without picking right and so once i had that it 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 made me more interested in like seeing how people were playing. Like I wanted to understand technique. I wanted to understand, it wasn't really about clarity or about like, you know, playing fast or anything at that time, but 
my mom got me the guitar. I started learning basic chord structures, started learning like rock rhythms. And then eventually I found myself like buying a six string electric guitar that had like a, a Floyd Rose system. And now I could do these cool dive bombs I hear people doing. And that was kind of about the same era that like YouTube was taking off. Mm. So um, this is funny. Uh, a couple days ago, my buddy and I went down this deep dive of this video about uh, a guy whose name is, I don't remember his username on YouTube, but he played Canon rock and he just does like sweeping and all kinds of wild stuff on guitar. I remember seeing that like 15 years ago and asking, how can I get that good? And that was one of yeah. the like reasons that I kept, kept playing, kept practicing. Yeah. And because, and I mean this in the, the nicest term, but obviously from the kind of music that you you create and just in the short space of time that we've been speaking now, I can kind of tell that you are very much like you deep dive on things and you're a bit of a, a musical nerd. I, <laughs> is that a fair, a fair assessment? Uh, it's, sure, maybe. I don't know. You have yeah. to explain more. <laughs> well, the reason I ask is just because from the style that you play and obviously you saying like the fascination of like technique and things like that. Yeah. When you were learning, were there any specific guitarists that you were drawn to that you were like, oh, I want to know how they do this rather than just sort of learning off your own back? Um, that's a good question. I'm sure there were, but the people that were around me when I was learning, they, they weren't like focused on musicianship very much. I mean, people who come to mind would be like the guitarists for the Eagles. Um, I mean, yeah. you'd hear like the, the guitar lead and then a subsequent duet of like Hotel California. And my um, my dad would say to me, he's like, oh, that's Glenn Fry, or that's this person, and he would name them. And we'd get to hear the sort of unique qualities and unique style that they would bring to their version of the solo or the lead. And so I started to identify that there was a unique, there was a unique like character being provided through an instrument. And that was kind of mm. substantial to me because I didn't realize that you could have a unique character. So then I would listen to Steve Vai. Then I would listen to, you know, Joe Satriani. And it's because my dad is also a guitarist. So he liked music in a way that guitarists like music. So eventually um, we were analyzing guitar work but there was there was nobody I was trying to emulate I just wanted to play the songs that they wrote so early on I was learning a lot of metalcore with my buddy Alex we would sit down mm. and we'd hear a song and we'd try to figure it out on guitar until eventually we were playing you know as LA dying records from front to back just we, we, we were able yeah. to, we were able to do it it wasn't until um, the internet was much easier and more accessible and YouTube was really starting to boom in like the 2000. 2012, 2010, yeah, 10 to 12, that I started being able to follow specific guitarists, specific right, creators, yeah, yeah. right? Because up until that point, you just had to hear their body of work and be like, cool, that was neat. So <laughs> yeah. yeah, so eventually I was able to actually hunt them down and watch, um, as an example, uh, Christopher Broderick. He had a Bet You Can't mm. Play This where he like taps and arpeggiates up the fretboard with both of his hands. And again, I was little Nico and I was like, how is he doing that? And I was freaking <laughs> out, right? So I taught myself how to, well, I tried to teach myself those techniques. But now I would say that I've come to a point where I do have a handful of musicians that I do like to follow closely, look at how they're advancing their technique, how they're bringing it to their new bodies of work. And it's been it's been pretty nice to know that there are other people that I can depend on to inspire me. Mm. And the other thing I always find interesting to like what shapes a musician is kind of like 
the kind of musical scene they grew up in? Because obviously no Kardashev is based in Arizona, but is that the kind of area you grew up in? Yep, born and raised in Arizona. Mark is born and raised in Arizona. Alex is born and raised in Arizona. All three of us, at least of that piece, were here. And then Sean's in Canada, so he has a different experience. <laughs> yeah. yeah, we were all here. So in terms of kind of like that, I say that musical scene kind of like shaping you, were you kind of like really active in like going to like metal shows and things like that? Or did it kind of take you a while to like find your place within like the mu- the quote unquote music scene within your local town? Um, it was pretty easy to get involved right from the get go. Once you hit high school and like you're hanging out with people who, again, you can identify like, hey, that's a metal shirt. We're going to hang out, you know, and you sort of just approach them. Then they start inviting you to like shows and stuff. And, it, and you realize that these people kind of are always at shows. You have like the sort of yeah. the, the crowd that always follows the shows around the city. And so it was pretty easy for us to get involved. I remember early days of watching like Job for a Cowboy and Veramia and Carnifex and other bands just like who are perpetually coming through our cities like every year every six six or so months um so it's pretty easy to kind of keep up with them in that way mm. and can you remember maybe not maybe one specific show or like a combination of shows that you maybe went to when you were younger that like there was that kind of light bulb moment of like oh this is something that I can do sort of thing was there kind of ever that moment um, I don't think there was that moment until I played my first show at a bar. It was a dive bar. It was a crappy show. I messed up a guitar solo. It was great. But, <laughs> <laughs> but I remember doing that show because my, one of the other guys in the band was like, Hey, we, you guys want to play at a bar? And we were like, what? Mm. We get to go to a bar. We were like 16. And so I was like, yeah, I want to play in front of people and be in a bar. Right. It's like, you're not allowed otherwise. So we, we set up the show, we go and we play, we invite like 10 of our friends from high school and they come watch us. And that was like one of the first times that I thought to myself, like, you know, it feels really good. Like I, I feel a sense of fulfillment being up here, playing for these people, seeing their happiness and enjoyment from whatever I'm creating. I think this seems like a, a good long-term plan to let this happen very frequently in my life. So for a number yeah. of years there, for at least... I'd say five or six years. I was playing every other month at a minimum, just because I was in. Oh, that's cool. Yeah, I was in bands that were always playing bars, gigs, touring shows, like whatever. Hmm. Well, I think that's a good jumping in point. So, what what was kind of like the first, like I guess, quote unquote, proper band that you were in that you would say that was kind, of, as you say actively doing shows and things like that and kind of what sort of genre of music was that so if i go backwards there's only really three bands that were ever anything substantial and worth mentioning there's obviously kardashev which were on 10 years this year mm. um if i go back one more band it was this local band in arizona called composer meet corpse which is a weird name but we we, we were <laughs> that's a cool name it's it's strange right it's actually from a book by uh james matheson but anyway um we, we used to play like every month, every month there was at least one show. We opened for Carnifex probably a hundred times. Um, like any, any extreme metal act that came through the, pro- we were the first on the promoters list. Hey, do you guys yeah. want to open? Do you want to open? You know, of course. Um, and then before that would have been high school. And that was a band called Tainted Winter, which do not Google, just don't. <laughs> Do not go on YouTube and try to look at that. It's not worth it. But those are the three bands. Like I said, high school is kind of where it started. And then when I got out of college, um, I came back home and, and, and applied through MySpace to be in this band, yeah. Composer Meet Corpse. And then eventually we started Kardashev. So that's kind of where we're at. 
That's cool. So I'm um, I'm guessing on basis of that, composer Meat Corpse was maybe the one that, as you say, you're playing like once a month sort of thing. But did you kind of do like any tours or anything with that, or did that not come along until Kardashev? Yeah, Kardashev was the first band that I toured with. Um, composer Meat Corpse was kind of like a Black Dahlia Murder inspired sort of band um we we wrote fast riffs a lot of like um a lot of like two-step beats blast beats but we never were able to really get out of the state we might have played a show in california or something but i don't remember it um Hmm. we were we were mostly like the weekend band like after after work after school whatever on the weekends we were playing at some venue on a friday saturday sunday okay that's cool yeah well in that case if we kind of move forward into kardashev then so yeah Obviously, we'll get into the beast that it is now in a little bit. But in terms of like when you first started and the first sort of embryonic ideas of the band, <clears throat> what was the kind of initial sound that you were going for? And was it kind of anywhere similar to what we hear now? Um, this is a good question. I like the word embryonic. That's a fun way to describe an era of time. Um, we originally we left composer meet corpse with the idea of writing meaningful as far as lyrical meaningful music that i guess was like bigger than whatever our local area was able to produce i'm sure people who are listening or even yourself um you might know that there's some kind of like localized sound quality that comes from musicians. Yeah, like for some reason, this is really um, prevalent in like the hip hop community. You know, when there's Atlanta rap and then, you know, when there's like West Coast rap and they just kind of have yeah, their distinctions. Yeah. I think metal is similar in that way. And and that band, Composer Meet Corpse, sounded like it was West Coast metal, death metal. It just kind of had that quality. So the embryonic influences beyond wanting to do substantial music and, and valuable lyrical content was to not sound like the things around us. We wanted to create Mm. something that was kind of new. So we took a lot of inspiration from bands that were from not our area. Three examples would be Aegean, which are from uh, Indiana, Uh, The Contortionist, which I think might actually also be from Indiana. Don't quote me on that. And then uh, (laughs) it just so happens Fallujah was coming out with an album at the time, or their second album, I think. And so we took those three bands and we used to listen to them basically on repeat because they were good. But then we decided, what if we tried to write the technicality and atmosphere of Fallujah with the breakdowns of Aegean, but then also the prog and beauty of the contortionist. And that became the Punnett square, the genetics that we fused together to try to create the Kardashev sound. Now, Mm. now at this point in time, we draw less inspiration from those three examples specifically, and we write more what we think is in line with our sound like what like we Mm. look at previous records and we say how do we take like the the beauty of the almanac with the sort of depth of the bearing of shadows but then insert more technicality and we got to liminal rights somehow so Mm. that's kind of what we're looking at now versus then and then obviously in terms of like conceptualizing with with the band obviously I think it was from like the first full length is kind of correct me if I'm wrong, that this is when you kind of like started the more kind of having um, like concept albums or has that always been something that's kind of been there from, from the get go? Um, I know that we, our demo wasn't a concept necessarily. It, it, well, hold on. Let me correct myself. 
If you want to consider a single subject across the length of a record, a concept, which I, I would argue is probably a close description, then I would say that, yeah, most of our most of our releases are concept records. Our demo was about the Kardashev scale. Um, Excipio was a story about a super creature that came to life during uh, the second level of the Kardashev scale. And then subsequent records like Peripety, our first full length, that wasn't necessarily about um, the greater Kardashev mythos, but it was about a single concept across 10 whole songs. So mm. we've always really done concept albums because honestly, I don't know what else we would write. L let me ask you, Tim, if I wasn't writing a concept record, would it be like a record of singles? What would it be? I don't know. <laughs> I don't know. Yeah, I don't know either, right? I've never really thought of it like that, to be honest. Because I mean, like pop music, you would write like a, a record of of just bops, right? Every single song should be on the Billboard 100 is probably the way that yeah. they approach it. Whereas with Kardashev, I don't care if the first or 10th song or whatever makes any kind of progress, as long as you understand that the whole thing is one piece of work. Yeah, yeah, that, that, that totally makes sense. And I think the thing that I, you may not be able to answer this, but I'm assuming because you've worked with Mark for so long that you'll have some kind of idea. But when you're kind of like, I don't know, like fleshing out the idea of what that that record is going to be about what the subject is going to be like how do you kind of approach it as a band because from my perspective and how i view music in general i'm always very much gravitated towards lyricism and vocals that's that's the thing that i gravitate towards so for me like i just think oh yeah the vocalist has, has written this and then he's either fit into whatever the rest of the band have written or the band have written the song around it sort of thing but because obviously you're doing it from a subject matter and things need to interlink are you having like a more of a conversation about like right this needs to fit here and how how you make it work as a cohesive piece yeah um the the process is a little bit disjointed we don't usually start writing a record with an idea in mind now that's changed okay that's changed for the current record we're working on because now we want a little bit more structure to our process but in the past as far as i can recall each record is composed first and then mark listens to the composition as a whole and decides how it makes him feel he, he listens okay. to it kind of isolated with, with great intense focus. And he says to himself internally, how do I feel right now? What is this record making me think about? And whatever he arrives at could be many things. It could be one specific thing. He takes that as his inspiration and he runs with it. So for this one, I think we had like two or three songs composed for Liminal Right. And he said, you know, what would be really cool is if we started talking about the mundane objects in our lives that give us more substantial value than the then we give them credit for. This could be like pencils and pens or the convenience of a remote control. He's like, mm. I want to take that concept and turn it on its head and see if we can make it somehow meaningful when nobody would argue that. That's how it began. Only until our bass player, Alex, wrote the first monologue, the first narration piece of the record, did it inspire Mark to now take a character who we call the lost man to take him and actually tell the story through his perspective and then it just so mm. happens that he was returning home and has dementia so it it wasn't it wasn't fully realized until probably half of the record was written okay that's cool yeah and then just in terms of that like as you say kind of having these things composed and then mark going away and getting that sense of 
what he wants to to focus on sort of thing and again because obviously you've worked together for so long then that's obviously you've kind of built up that trust in in what his vision's going to be but is it a case of not that that like there would ever be any like pushback or anything like that but is it a case that you have complete faith in like whatever he's going to come up with or does he maybe does he come to you guys and go this is kind of my idea what do you think and then there's a bit more kind of hashing out of it or is it just you do what you want to do we've written the music go for it sort of thing yeah we we have a couple of guiding principles that help us like understand what we should do in moments like that mark usually says um here are some ideas that i have and then we usually help him decide but our guiding principle is that mark is in charge of the vocals of the record the lyrics of the record the story of the record we we put that on him we say this is your wheelhouse you need to own it Mm. and he does the same for me he says nico look i'm going to tell you something's going to suck on guitar I'm going to tell you, I'm going to tell you that I do or do not like this. He said, but at the end of everything we do, you are the final say. It is your domain to be the guitarist and Mm. composer. So we are critical of one another, but we also afford each other the respect to say, but at the end of it, it is yours to do with what you want. So with that being said, Mark usually knows exactly what he's going to do after about a week of listening to the composition. And he'll come to us and he'll say, after listening, it put me in this state of mind, it put me in this mood. I think I want to write about this using these tools to my disposal. And we'll usually just be excited because I'm going to be honest with you, Tim, I'm not one for lyrics and story and vocals. That's not, I'm not <laughs> yeah. creative in that way. You know, I'm, I'm creative in like musicality and emotional interpretation. Yeah. So I don't really do much pushback on Mark because I don't, I wouldn't know what I'd push back. I'd be like, no, we got to write about the fall of Toys R Us. I love that store. You know, like, I don't know what I would say. So I'm usually inspired by his enthusiasm and his uh, sincerity and what he gives, what he gives us. That's cool. Yeah. Um, and the other thing that I always kind of like find interesting and I'll be completely transparent here like i didn't really discover your band until um the bearing of shadows that's my that was my entry point um but for for you like being insiders of the band was there a moment that you kind of realized like oh there are people paying attention to us and we are starting to get gather sort of like a fan base as such was there kind of a moment that you realized that yes there was um it actually happened twice um the most recent time was the bearing of shadows when we were approached Mm. by metal blade like that, that was like, okay, people are, people are paying attention. Like that was definitely big. But before that, in 2017, we released um, our album, The Almanac. And it, mm-hmm. it was like our first, like critically acclaimed record by the community. It wasn't like getting on the right. billboard or anything like that. Definitely not. But the internet was making a stink about it and people were talking about it. And I thought, okay, I think we're onto something. And that was like the first moment. Hmm. And then the other thing I always find interesting is in terms of like going out and playing shows and stuff. And I think because the style of music that you play, obviously we'll, we'll, we'll get onto the death gaze thing in a moment okay. because I, I'm interested in that. But in terms of that, it's, it's obviously like if you take away the label of it, it's just an interesting style of metal that's been gone through various different grinders of levels and interpretations. But to see that live, obviously, I haven't had the fortunate, like, duty of having that, but I can imagine it's quite the spectacle, and because you've got so much going on. 
so I don't know. Has that been another level of like things of like when people have seen you, they're like, oh, I get it now, sort of thing. That's that's a good question. You know, I'm also not sure. We haven't played a live show since 2016. Um, mm. we, we gave up the live scene due to um, some restrictions that we had at the time, namely that we didn't have a drummer for many, 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 yeah. many, many years. But I know that I've seen people have a sincere reaction to Mark in the live setting, wherein, you know, they like they come up and hug him or they share words with him or just, you know, words of praise. It's not something that's very uncommon, at least in my experience. But I've, I don't know if I've seen people have that aha moment necessarily live. I, mm. I would like to think that if we were to play live again one day, that they would have that because the music has changed since 2016 for us. And like you said, it's starting to get a little bit more acclaim. And, and there was a, there's aha moments that we saw in the community, even with the Bearing of Shadows and the Almanac, but we've never played those records live. So yeah. I would hope that somebody there who's unsuspecting would kind of have that moment if they heard us. Mm. And just in that case, because obviously I had, a, like, I was trying to do some digging to see when the last time you played live was, but so thank you for, for clarifying. Yeah, no that. problem. But in terms of that, because I think obviously take away the pandemic, that was a weird time that everyone would probably like to forget. Yeah. But in terms of like, I guess the way that we access music nowadays, like through the internet, and like people using like Instagram to follow individual members of bands and things like that, there's obviously a lot more kind of like easy access to bands. But for a band to be solely existence on the internet in some form, it's quite unusual for for now. Because even if they're projects that maybe start as an internet project they then kind of grow and become a, a live band. So I don't know, has it been a strange thing for you to be essentially like just a, a project that exists in the ether of of music rather than a, a touring band? And, and has that, do you feel that that's worked to your benefit? Um, this is a good question because all four of us in the band, we deeply desire performing. We, 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 mm. we love the energy just as much as the next musician. Um, but logistically speaking, and as you said, the pandemically speaking, um, opportunities have kind of missed us, or at least we've missed them. We've had tour offers over the years, many of them, but none of them made sense for either a logistical reason, financial reason, whatever it might have been. And we're not really big risk takers in that regard. You know, we understand that our business model is to stay at home, create content, create albums. That's kind of how we always mm. function. What I would say is that we all want to play live. I know, I know Mark's strongest memory is when we went on this little weekend warrior tour back in 2014. Um, we did five days up on the West Coast of the United States. And he has told me multiple, multiple times since then that he's been chasing that sort of emotional high ever since. Yeah. He hasn't really found it anywhere else. And then I know our bass player, Alex, he's always on tour with Holy Fawn. So he does it regularly and would love to do it in the lens of Kardashev. Sean has expressed it many times, but he lives in Canada. So like even practicing, <laughs> yeah. even all of us getting together to practice is kind of like a logistical nightmare. Um, so what I would say is we all want to do it. We all want to tour, but we have been successful with our business model because we're quite prolific in through the lens of the internet. One, mm. one thing that we have that other bands many other bands do as well, but don't have as much opportunity because they're on the road is that we try to 
stream frequently, create videos frequently yeah. on YouTube. And most bands are on tour. And so that's a, that's, that's a lot of workload to try to put together. So we kind of exist in the social space that the internet provides, whereas they exist in the actual venue space that tour provides. <laughs> yeah. So it's a little different. That's cool. Um, and then just in terms of like around Liminal Right, obviously, as I said, like my introduction was The Bearing of Shadows. And I think like just having that record on it in itself was, I don't know, like, for me it was like a time and place like it was perfect sort of finding that record because it was like in the middle of a pandemic i was working in a shitty like warehouse night night job shift where my only escape was i could put pop my headphones in and just listen to music but because it was a time when i could access so much music i was constantly digging for new music and that's how i came across kardashev okay and as and as i say like I know there was other people that had a sort of a similar experience and then obviously led to further fandom and led to excitement for, for liminal, right. And we've kind of obviously addressed that there was a bit more anticipation around this record, but in terms of like you guys putting it together and as you say, kind of having that kind of a bit more sort of deeper context of, of what you wanted the, the subject and theme of it to be, I don't know when you were kind of like, getting to to where it was ready to put out into the world because you say like it being this story like through the eyes of the character that that mark's created because you now also have this additional audience and as you as you just said you have this tool of the internet and, and things like that did it give you the opportunity to to be able to like carefully craft how liminal right would be put it out into the world rather than maybe how the bearing of shadows was that it was picked up at a time when people were digging for more music. So you had a bit more control over this, if that makes sense. Hmm. I mean, I would like to think that there's some sort of, there's some sort of greater force out there that leads people to sort of solutions for problems. They're not quite sure how to solve. Perhaps for some hmm. people hearing the bearing of shadows is is a possible solution. Maybe they need to grieve something or they want closure on a subject or they just need to have a good cry. And so maybe the bearing of shadows did that for them. It was the breaking point, right? Mm. There's a chance that that is uh, something that I would hope for. However, having Metal Blade involved uh, brings in a completely different um, set of logistics. This is, this, yeah. is, this is a massive record label who's responsible for worldwide distribution and an unlimited... Um, supply of vinyl and CD production, right? This 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 is a different <laughs> yeah. scale than I'm used to as a DIY band who's running batches of CDs in the amount of 100. You know, like uh, I hope we sell all 100. <laughs> yeah. That's where we came from. So when it came to liminal right, we actually had a different set of parameters. We had a deadline that we had to ride it by um, that we set up ourselves. They asked us. They said, "Hey, when can you get us the first record?" And I was like, "October." Like I definitely, I, I was like, "We can do it." I promise. Still trying to prove myself to them, right? And so we got the record done in October. We handed it off to them November first, and I said to them, "When do you think it'll release?" And at this point in the pandemic, at this point, why is my color so weird? What the heck? Okay, um, at this point in the pandemic. The logistics were starting to break down. This was when the uh, this is when that boat got stuck in the Panama Canal or something for like a week. Like, yeah, like yeah. all of that was kind of happening. There was a worldwide shortage of paper, and there was a worldwide shortage of the the color for vinyl that is, or sorry, the dye color 
for green for vinyl, whatever that, however right. that works, right? And they're telling us this. They're relaying it to me, and they're like, hey, guys, just want to let you know, logistically, this is what we're looking at. So they told us, your record will come out in December of 22. And we said, wow, we have to wait over a year. But, I mean, it's not in their hands. We're looking at the whole world here. Okay, fast forward to February, and they say, what do you guys think about a summer release? And we're like, we just want it to come out. I don't care when it comes out. We just like, let's get it yeah. out there. So they have different logistical challenges and considerations to make than we did as a DIY band. Um, right. And so with that being said, we don't really like evaluate the world around us to determine what we're going to write about and when we're going to deliver it. That doesn't mean that it doesn't coincidentally work out. And that doesn't mean that the bearing of shadows wasn't kind of perfectly timed in a way. I think that's just mm. coincidental. Okay, cool. Um, I know that I've, I've only got you a little longer than Nico, and I say I do want to just quickly address the the death gaze sure. thing. Not not so much the invention of the term, because I think you you and Mark have covered that in various different yeah. interviews. But there's a point that friends of mine who uh, run another podcast called the Heaviest Podcast, who are very like big fans of you guys, um, they feel like they manifested this into the world. So a recent bit of merch that you put up was the Death Case Daddies thing. And they refer to you as that. So please enlighten me of how Death Case Daddies came about. Sure, I would love to. Yeah, the uh, the Heaviest podcast, they, they do a really good job. It's really enjoyable to listen to them. One of my favorite parts of their podcast, at least for the episode that I listened to, which is the Kardashev episode, um, was where they said uh, they said the title of one of our songs and then they immediately followed up with like that sounds like shit in our accent and I was like oh my god this is adorable <laughs> they're very entertaining um, but I was listening to their review the death gaze daddies and I know that they were they were also sort of trying to better understand the idea of death gaze and that it's just basically a way to subdivide a genre when you don't fit into the tropes of like metalcore deathcore death metal so they were talking to one another about what death gaze is but they started off the bit with and let's 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 get into um let's get into the discussion of kardashev uh death gaze daddies and as soon as i heard the alliteration on that and like the meanness of it i was like oh i'm making a shirt so so i went into photoshop i put it in there and immediately uploaded it to our store and of course like it's sold out right away it's hilarious um but Death gaze is this weird phenomenon that I'm kind of in one camp of regretting associating it with us, but in the other <laughs> camp, kind of owning it. And I'm just kind of like, whatever, dude, like, just who cares? Like the elitists will be the elitists and the rest of us will all just hang out and enjoy ourselves. Um, but yeah. death gaze is an interesting little bit of our history now, which is funny. Yeah. And that's the other thing, like, because obviously you're, you're creating this like quite intense, emotive music like it's nice to see that you there is a side of you guys that you don't take yourself too seriously yeah and i literally i don't know how i did this but i stumbled across it and i want to i'm gonna make the assumption that it's mark but on your music videos like on like youtube and things if you put the closed captions on there's little easter eggs i'm not going to tell what people what they are so they can go away and find them but oh my god they're amazing so was that was that Mark's idea? No, that's me. That's me. 
Oh, honestly, it was so, when I saw saw them pop up. I thought they were so Dude, good. I'm, I'm telling you, I I love subtext. I think subtext is hilarious. And so, like Death Gay's daddies, someone's gonna think to themselves, like, I've never heard Kardashev before. They're on this huge, massive record label. I'm gonna go to their website. They go to the website. Everything's beautiful and like well branded and put together thoughtfully. And then they get to the merch section, and the top shirt is Death Gay's daddies, and they're like. <laughs> what and then they realize that we like memes too and that we pick up kittens and we snuggle them just like everybody else like there's there's no vibrato there's no like tough guy bigger than life sort of thing i think a lot of metal bands try to oversell how like mean or tough they are which is fine that's their brand they should own it that's just not us we're we're a bunch of we're a bunch of cuddly nerds who play dungeons and dragons once a month you know what i mean like this this is our thing and we like memes too so i love that you found the closed captions because I go really far out of my way to make that as enjoyable as possible. On the downside, yeah. deaf people watching it are probably like, what the fuck is going on in this video? <laughs> yeah. Very true, very yeah. true. Brilliant. Well, Nico, just before I do let you go, um, how I usually end this is to ask my guests what their favourite song is with a little bit of a twist. But because you guys haven't played live in so long, I'm just going to flat out ask you, what's your favourite Kardashev song that you like to play? That I like to play? Um, there's a song called Displacement that is very enjoyable. It's heavy. It's got slam parts, technical atmosphere. It comes from our 2013 record, Excipio, and not many people at this point are probably familiar with it. So check it out. Brilliant. Perfect. Nico, thank you very much for your time. Um, the record is fantastic, and I'm sure many, many people out there agree with me. And this is going to be my plea to you. If you ever do live shows again, come to the UK, please. I would love to. Thank you so much for your time as well, Tim. You have a great day. No worries. Take care. So there we have it, folks. Again, a huge thank you to Nico for taking some time out of their day to have a little chat with me. Uh, as always, you can keep up to date with what Kardashev are doing by visiting all their various social media platforms, which will be linked in the show notes. Um, and yeah, that is it for us for another week. As, as I mentioned, we'll be back next week with another episode, um, which is a uh, one that we've kind of already got in the in the bag. Would have been this week's episode, but again, for some reason, I'm having difficulty with sounds at the moment. I do apologise. I'm not the best with tech and things like that, so sorry um but yeah we'll be back again next week but as always thank you for checking out the episode whether this is the first time you're listening to the justin insight podcast or the 222nd time thank you for stopping by and i will see you soon